Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely Skylight listeners. Welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series where we bring you conversations with authors near and far. Um, Today we have a fantastic author. I'm going to introduce her in just a minute, but I wanted to uh, give you a quick update on the store, all that kind of good stuff. Um, If you're not familiar with the sound of my voice, welcome to the podcast. You must be new here. My name is Maddie Gobo. I'm the events manager at Skylight Books. We're a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. Right now we are still open for in-store shopping with a mask every day from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. We also do curbside pickup and online orders. We'll ship you your books wherever they need to go. Um, You know, I know the mail is less reliable than it once was, but we will do our darndest to make sure you get those books that you need. Couple of other updates. Uh, We've got some really good stuff coming up on our September events schedule, which you can see on our website, www.skylightbooks.com slash event. Um, Or you can find us on Crowdcast. Our Crowdcast page is crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. Lots of good stuff there. It's all pretty much free. Um, We're doing this all for you. So we hope you turn out um, and check out these great authors. I'm really excited. Um, especially next week, I think is quite action-packed. We're launching on Sunday the 13th, um, which you'll be hearing this podcast quite a bit later than that, but you can still watch the replay. I'm very excited for this book launch. It's going to be Fariha Rajin's debut novel, Like a Bird, coming out from Unnamed Press, and she's going to be in conversation with Tanais. Um, I'm just so, such a huge fan, so uh, I hope you guys check that one out, and lots more coming up. All right. So, today we have on the podcast Sambul Ali Karamali. Sambul is a Muslim American who grew up in California, answering questions on Islam ever since she can remember. After becoming a corporate lawyer, she earned an additional degree in Islamic law. She specializes in synthesizing academic material for general audiences and is the author of The Muslim Next Door and Growing Up Muslim. A popular speaker on topics related to Islam and Muslims, she hopes to promote intercultural understanding with her work, at least when she's not watching Star Trek reruns, listening to opera, or reluctantly whitewater rafting with her husband. Connect with Sambal on her website at www.sambalalikaramali.com. Her new book is called Demystifying Sharia, What It Is, How It Works, and Why It's Not Taking Over Our Country. Welcome to the podcast, Symbol. 
Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Delighted to have you. Um, do you want to give our listeners just a little bit of context uh, as to who you are and, and maybe what this book is about? Yeah, I would love to. So, um, as you said, I grew up in Southern California, and I grew up at a time, actually, when there were very few Muslims around me. Um, there were very few that I, I knew. Uh, we, my parents had to drive quite a ways to meet with any Muslim friends, um, and I was usually the first Muslim that my teachers and my friends had ever come across. And <laughs> keep in mind, this was not the boonies or anything. This was an urban area, but it was uh, the 70s and, um, you know, there, there just weren't very Muslims, very many Muslims there at the time. So, as you know, being the only one, I answered a lot of questions. And in elementary school, this really didn't come up very much because people don't talk about religion on the playground. Uh, but, you know, I'd go to a birthday party and there would be pepperoni pizza and then I'd have to explain that I didn't eat pepperoni because it was pork and I didn't eat pork because I was Muslim. And that's how it sort of came up. Um, when I went, uh, when I graduated from high school and I went to Stanford, that's really I, when I felt like it was my first Interfaith 101 experience um, because we were living in the dorms. Everybody knows what everybody else is doing. I was um, just like six inches away from my roommate, right? We, it was a very small, small room. So we were six inches away and I kept thinking, well, how am I going to pray five times a day without my roommate noticing? And, you know, how am I going to figure out if there's pork in the dorm food when nobody knows what's in the dorm food? And <laughs> it was, it was like this, um, it was like negotiation and constantly explaining what I was doing and why, you know, why I couldn't do the things that I wasn't doing. And um, so this kind of continued. I went to law school and I started practicing as a corporate lawyer. And that's when people started asking me for book recommendations. And there were no fun ones. Like there were no fun books on Islam, I have to say. Uh, and there was maybe a textbook and the occasional um, maybe Sufi poetry volume. And that was it. So when my husband's job took us to London, I did an additional degree in Islamic law from the University of London. And then I started writing books. So that's, that's how it all happened. I love that journey. That's, <laughs> that's very exciting. I mean, yeah, because I think this is a question that I personally have as a, as a white person who's non-Muslim. Like, mm -hmm. what is Sharia law? Like, I he I've heard a lot about it in the media. Yeah. I've heard a lot yeah. of scary things about it. But yeah. I, you know, I, I don't necessarily trust that information. So I'm really glad that you're um, out here speaking on this subject and, um, and informing folks. Thank you for Thank this Thank you. Um, Thank so you. can you tell me, how did you decide to write this book, this book in particular on Sharia law? Yeah, so, so I have to say, um, you know, people, first of all, people assume I'm, since I'm a Muslim woman, you know, my parents must have wanted to marry me off really young and um, I must have broken the shackles of Islam in order to get where I am. And it's really funny because I, I was brought up to think that Islam was feminist. And imagine my shock when, when I started hearing stereotypes that, that I was oppressed. And I thought, wow, I'm, I'm oppressed? How, how have I been oppressed? And um, you know, when I first started as a corporate lawyer, one of the partners uh, sat me down and said, uh, why are Muslims more violent than other kinds of people? And you know, there I was in my new suit and my new pumps looking nonviolent and 
you know, cooperative. So it was, it was kind of a shock to me. So, um, so my parents always wanted me to be financially independent. And so a lot of what I write about, getting back to your question about Sharia, a lot of what I write about comes from when people have asked me questions or um, come up to me and introduced a topic. And it's always been kind of a surprise to me that, that they have these perceptions about them. So, so my first book was really about answering the questions that people always had asked me in my life. Um, my book, Demystifying Sharia, the, it germinated when I was at one of my Stanford reunions. And I was at the bookstore. I was um, <laughs> standing next to a pile of my books because it was an event for alumni authors. And here I was, you know, again, in my suit <laughs> and um, with this pile of books waiting for people to come and buy one so that I could autograph it. And this couple who were there for their um, 50th reunion, so in their 70s probably, um, came up to me and they said, you know, you're, you're so, you look so nice and we think that we would be able to talk to you. And we're really afraid that Sharia law is taking over the United States. And I was so flabbergasted. And I wanted to say, where is it? Where do you see it? <laughs> but I didn't say that. I said, oh, well, you know what? Um, we have our constitution and our first amendment prohibits any religious law from taking over the United States. And plus we have Congress and all sorts of other checks and balances. And they just looked at me and they said, well, Rush Limbaugh said it could take over the United States. And they walked away without buying a book. <laughs> and, and it was just a shock for me because I thought, wow. I mean, it was just a shock on a lot of different levels. But um, I started thinking, okay, this is maybe something that I need to address. And that's, that's how it started. Yeah, and I think, I mean, in the last, maybe in the last decade, or I guess since Kind of 9-11 times so the last 20 years. Sharia mm -hmm. has been this this word that kind of floats around in the sort of right-wing yeah. echo chambers scaring scaring people. Oh um, yes, it's a scare word. <laughs> <laughs> but, but kind of before 9-11, it was definitely a word I had never heard. So mm -hmm. I'm kind of wondering if you could talk about how the word came into the kind of the public discourse, the public consciousness here in the U.S. And, um, yeah. you know, why it has the particular um, loadedness that it currently has. Yeah. Well, so my first book came out in 2008. And when I wrote that one, nobody, like you said, nobody was talking about Sharia. It was not a word that anyone had heard. In my first book, I only, I think I mention it, but maybe describe it in a paragraph. Because loosely, Sharia just means Islam. So my book was about Islam. So why would I then talk about Sharia as a separate thing? Um, it was, it's an academic term of art. It's, it's an Islamic academic term. So there was no reason to talk about it. And yet by, two, by 2010, in fact, it was in 2010 that this started, um, suddenly there was this, just there were anti-Sharia protests. And how did this happen? Like, how did it happen that in 2008, that nobody knows anything about Sharia, and then in 2010, there are anti-Sharia protests, and everyone's talking about, you know, Sharia is this scary, draconian, harsh, black and white law that's going to take over the United States and put all the women in burqas, you know? So, 
so what happened, and it was, this is a very interesting phenomenon, um, there is in the United States and also in Europe, uh, a loosely connected Islamophobia network of individuals and organizations whose purpose it is to foment fear about Muslims and Islam. And I mean, some of them may believe in what they're doing. Some of them have political reasons for what they're doing, but probably the biggest reason is that they make a lot of money doing it, you know, fear sells. And they've been uh, well-documented in a number of studies and books. So one person whose name is D David Yerushalmi, um, he's a lawyer himself, but he decided, and he admits this himself, he decided that he wanted to introduce the idea of a scary Islamic law taking over the United States. Um, in order to do this, he went to state legislatures and said, you know what, you really need laws. You need anti-Sharia laws to prevent Sharia from taking over the United States. Now, he's a lawyer. He knows that Sharia cannot take over the United States because of the establishment clause of the First Amendment of our Constitution. So he knows this, but as he admits, his purpose was just to bring this idea out into the open. It was not particularly um, to stop Sharia. He knows that can't happen. It was to redefine Sharia as a scare word. And that's what they did. They redefined Sharia as a scare word. They went to state legislatures and said, you have to pass these laws. And to date, I think 14 state legislatures have passed anti-Sharia laws. It's, it's a colossal waste of time. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it, it's amazing. The American Bar Association has come out strongly against these laws because they raise all kinds of problems. They're kind of a, you know, they're, they're a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. So, but, but his purpose was really achieved, which was to spread this idea that Sharia was, was a horrible, oppressive Islamic law that was out to take over the United States. Yeah, so when, when these kind of figures talk about Sharia, like how are they defining it? I mean, it seems to me, what I'm thinking of is I just saw um, a couple of days ago, a cartoon on Twitter, um, somebody found on right-wing Facebook somewhere. Yes. <laughs> um, and it has, it's like a caricature of like a woman like wearing a coronavirus mask and then the mm -hmm. mask gets bigger and then it becomes a burqa. And they're like, yeah, ah, yeah. this is what's gonna yeah. happen. <laughs> <laughs> is well, that what they're talking I... about? <laughs> yeah. So. Um... Actually, can I just interject a, a funny story at this point? Absolutely. Um, I, I got I got a call from I got a call from a CNN producer one year, and it was the day that the burqa ban went into effect in France. And they called me because you know they you can look at my book cover, and there I am without a headscarf or a burqa or anything. And they call me and they say, um, "What do you think of the burqa ban?" And I said, "Well, you know." The great majority of Islamic scholars say that the burqa is not uh, is, is not Islamic. It's not religiously mandated. It actually predates Islam from a time where everybody wore something over their face to keep the sand out in the desert, and um, and it came to be associated with Islam. But it's, it's the great majority of scholars say it's not required. Not all scholars even say that headscarves are required in Islam. Um, and I, so I told this to the producer and I said, but, you know, I do think that if a woman wants to wear a burqa and she is 
you know, cooperative when it comes to security and, you know, taking it off for, for security, then that's fine. And the CNN producer said, oh, well, we wanted someone who was in favor of the Burqa ban. Thanks anyway. <sighs> and so it was, so I thought, oh, okay, so you didn't want nuance, I guess. <laughs> mm. But that's kind of, um, anyway, that was just an aside. Um, so yes, Sharia, it's those images that we always see in the media, right? We, whenever there's a, a Muslim or somebody who's, um, or, or they're talking about Islam even, that's what they show. They show a woman in a burqa. And because it's visible, it's easy to identify. I mean, you could see me walking down the street and you would never know that I was Muslim unless I told you. So they want the, the visible, the visible picture. And so can I go ahead and define actually Sharia? Yes, please. So, okay. <laughs> um, so just, so the problem with, with the actual word Sharia is that it doesn't have a fixed meaning. It's, it has several meanings, you know, sky has a fixed meaning, desk has a fixed meaning, but Sharia can mean a lot of different things. So literally it means the path to the watering place. So of course, if you live in the desert and that's where your religion originates, you wanna be on the path to the watering place, right? Um, in religious terms, it means the, the righteous path, the path that you want to be on to be a good person, um, the path of God. That's what Sharia means. So um, that Muslims consider is, you know, is divine. Now, for early Muslims, and this was the seventh century, the question arose of what exactly does that mean? Like, what do I have to do to be on the path of God? Um, how do I know what God wants me to do, right? And so for early Muslims, for seventh century Muslims and later, um, they had a couple of clues. They had the Quran, which is the Muslim holy book, and they had the words and deeds of the prophet Muhammad. And they started interpreting those religious texts in order to come up with new rules. Because the Quran and, you know, the words of the prophet, they don't cover all the rules, like, can I send my kid to the prom, or would that be <laughs> a violation of my religion? So, um, they started coming, they started interpreting the religious texts in order to come up with new rules. And these they filled um, tens and tens of thousands of books with these with this interpretive literature, which is called fiqh. So that is really where a lot of the rules of Islam are. But the thing to remember is that Sharia is the path of God. Doesn't change, right? Because it's God. But the fiqh, which is the interpretive writings on the religious texts, those can change. And so assuming that Muslims believe, uh, Muslims believe in and act according to medieval Islamic rules is like assuming that Christians follow ninth century Catholic canon law, you know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> which is pretty wacky. I mean, I would like to see <laughs> that version of reality. <laughs> just a so, visit. I don't want to stay there. I just want to go. <laughs> no, no. So, um, so, and sometimes, so that, that's kind of the difference. Sharia also can refer to the legal tradition in Islam. So it can refer to the, the Quran and the words of the prophet and all the interpretive writings all together. And, and that can also um, be called Sharia. So you can say, according to the Sharia, you know, Muslims have to pray five times a day, for example. Um, the, the problem with that is that 
um, it, it doesn't separate into what is divine and unchangeable and what is changeable. So we always want to keep in mind that the, the religious rules of Islam, they're mostly, they've developed throughout the centuries. They have methodologies for change, but Sharia as the way of God does not change. So Muslims themselves, by the way, are confused about this. So it's really, it's really sometimes difficult because um, they assume that all the rules of religion are unchangeable because it's Sharia. Well, that's not true. Um, it's only certain things like stuff in the Quran that is not changeable, but it can be reinterpreted just like other religions. So that's kind of Sharia in a nutshell. <laughs> um, and that's why, that's why, Maddie, it, that's why it can be, remember when I said, sometimes I tell Muslims if they don't have an answer to what Sharia is, they can just say Sharia means Islam. So I really like that, um, that way of thinking of sh Sharia as, as just being sort of inextricable from Islam in general and, and being just as complex as Islam in general. Um, but I know that it is, it is used in very specific ways uh, in recent days. Um, we've been hearing it from some right-wing uh, congressional candidates. And I know you wrote an op-ed about one of these candidates. Could you, <laughs> could you speak a little bit more about what they said and, and why it's so wrong? Oh, well, you know, yeah, so, so Marjorie Taylor Greene has been quoted as saying that um, any Muslim who believes in Sharia should not be in government. And this actually, I have to be honest, made me laugh because um, Sharia loosely just means Islam because Sharia is, can refer to the Quran and the words of the Prophet and the interpretive writings um, on the religious texts. And that is pretty much Islam. So you'd be hard put to find a Muslim who didn't believe in Sharia because it's just Islam and all Muslims have to believe in Islam because that's the definition. So it's, uh, um, it just reveals this really vast lack of understanding about what she's talking about. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that this particular um, Islamophobic rhetoric is coming from a female candidate um, and, and often, you know, these attacks on Islam that are focused on Sharia talk about the role of women in Islam. Yes. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, is it true everything that they're saying? I mean, I know that it's <laughs> not, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate yeah. here, but, but like, what is, what is the real sort of like gender relationship and, and gender dynamics within um, Islam and specifically under Sharia? Um, like, how mm -hmm. can we, how can we kind of correct this narrative of like, oh, all of the women are like these silent cloaked figures. That, yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, entire, I have to just tell you, entire books have been written on women in Islam. So it's hard to do it justice in um, a couple of minutes. <laughs> but I think the thing to remember, um, you know, as I said, I grew up in Southern California. My parents' biggest goal for me was to be financially independent. I mean, they wanted me to be a doctor because in their minds, as Indian immigrants, um, the way to be financially independent was to be a doctor. And I'm the most squeamish person on earth, I have to tell you. Like, I, I wouldn't have made it past my first cadaver. So I, I went to law school instead, which was a grave disappointment to them. But I, they, you know, people just assume that, oh, they must have wanted to marry me off. And, um, or people have asked me if I was a child bride, for heaven's sake. Oh. And no, you know, my parents, 
never tried to marry me off. They wanted me to be a doctor. <laughs> so, so there is this very weird disconnect between um, what you know Islam as a religion says and uh, what people think of it. And there are reasons for this, which are complicated. But what I tell people is that yes, there are some Muslim women who are in um, oppressed situations, but there are also um, women in lots of Asian countries who are in oppressed situations. And there are lots of Latin American women who are in oppressed situations. And the biggest factors for whether a woman is, is oppressed or not is poverty. There was just a study that came out um, affirming this, that religion plays very little, um, a, a very small part in, in the status of women. It is mostly a matter of poverty, uh, access to resources, and some, some cultural norms. So when I tell people um, about Islam, I say, well, you know, if you want to think about Muslim women, why compare American women to Muslim women over there in some third world country? You know, if you really want to compare apples and apples instead of apples and oranges, if you really want to, to solve um, for religion and, and get rid of all the other extraneous factors of culture and poverty and access to resources, then you really need to start comparing Muslim American women with non-Muslim American women, right? Mm -hmm. Because then you're just looking at the religion. And then what you find is that Muslim American women are the second most educated faith group in the United States, just after Jewish American women. You also find that Muslim American women have the most parity with men in their faith group in terms of salaries. So in other words, Muslim American women make as much as their male counterparts do. Um, and the, the, I mean, they, they make equal amounts when you look at them. Whereas in other faith groups in the United States, women make much less. <clears throat> so, so Muslim American women have the most parity with Muslim American males. <laughs> There's lots of terms <laughs> to make sure I'm getting the right. So, you know, that is not the way that people think about Muslim women, right? As educated and making as much money as men do. But that's the fact in the United States. Mm -hmm. And the reason is that I mean, and so then you have to conclude that it's not religion that is causing the problems for women. And in fact, um, what I like to say, and this is absolute truth, in the seventh century, Muhammad and the Quran gave women more rights than English women would have for another thousand years. Wow. And they, um, Muslim women in the seventh century had the right to divorce, they had the right to custody of their young children. They had the right to enter into their own contracts and keep their property even after they got married. I mean, let's remember that in Jane Austen's time, um, if a woman married, she, her husband pretty much got all her property. And um, also they got, Muslim women in the seventh century got mandatory rights of inheritance. So again, you know, if we think of Pride and Prejudice, and we think of Elizabeth Bennet and her four sisters who were not going to get anything from their father because his whole estate was going to go to their odious cousin, uh, Mr. Collins. <laughs> Did you remember? Yeah. Um, well, that wouldn't have happened in a Muslim society because, because the daughters would have had a mandatory right of inheritance. 
So all this means that Islam was radically feminist for the seventh century. Why don't we hear of it um, now as a feminist religion? Well, because a lot of Muslim countries are just now coming out from colonization. Uh, almost 90% of the Muslim world was colonized under European colonials um, for 100 to 200 years. So that disrupted the development of Islamic law and it defunded Islamic educational institutions. So Muslim majority countries, most of them have only been independent for 50 or 60 years. And when you have political turmoil and poverty and um, you know, resources that were taken by the colonizers, then you have, you, know, you have chaos. You have dictators who are left in place by the, by the Western government, you know, Saddam Hussein and um, Mubarak and Assad, these were all dictators who took over after colonialism. So, um, so, you know, when people are subjugated or when there's chaos, women suffer disproportionately. I mean, this is, this is absolutely true. The World Health Organization is always concerned when there's a world recession, a global recession, because women suffer disproportionately. Right, and that's just as true in Christian, so-called Christian nations as um, nations where Islam is the majority religion. Yeah, absolutely. So, and so I think the clearest indication of that is if you look at Muslim American women, because they're not hampered by um, political and social chaos and post-colonial nationalist movements, you know, yeah. and so. I think that's so interesting because, um, yeah, we as Americans have been trained by our media to think of Islam as this foreign thing, this thing that's really far away that we can't, you know, we can't possibly understand. It's beyond our reach. But actually, Islam is very much a part of our cultural, our cultural fabric as well here in the U.S. Like, it is, like, there are many Muslim Americans, but the way the media covers Islam, you would not know. <laughs> Absolutely. It's so true. In fact, um, I was speaking to a sixth grade classroom just about basics of Islam and one 11-year-old raised his hand and he said, you know, I thought Muslim women um, couldn't, couldn't go anywhere without their husbands or their, their brothers or their fathers. And, and I thought they couldn't, they had to be all covered up and I thought they couldn't drive. So how did you get here? <laughs> And I said, camel, my camel. <laughs> but no, I, I did say, but you're thinking, you're thinking of Saudi Arabia. I think that's what you're thinking of. And you have to remember that the Saudis are only 2% of the Muslim population in the world. So, and Iran is the, uh, the next country that people always think of when they think of Muslims, but Iranians are only 4% of the world Muslim population. Over half the Muslims in the world live in Asia. So just four countries, so India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Indonesia account for over half the Muslims in the world. And we don't hear of those countries as being so fundamentalist and because they're not. <laughs> um, so I think that's, you know, it's definitely media that propels the images that we have. Um, certainly people assume that because I'm Muslim, I must be foreign. It's always kind of a shock to me because um, I, you know, I, sometimes I think of myself as white because I grew up in a white neighborhood, <laughs> but, uh, white American certainly, 
So, um, but, but to your point, definitely Muslims have been in this country for a long time. In fact, up to 30% of African slaves brought to this country were Muslim. And they were not necessarily able to keep their religion. You know, they were converted to Christianity or um, they were just not able to, to convert, uh, sorry, not able to, to keep their religion, but um, up to 30%. It's not clear exactly how many. An interesting fact um, that's been documented is that blues music, I don't know if you're a fan of blues, Maddie? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, okay. So blues music has, as one of its originating factors, the chanting of the Quran. Hmm. So it's, there's a good argument that African slaves who were brought to this country, you know, couldn't maybe pray five times a day, but they could chant the Quran. And Quranic chanting eventually sort of morphed into blues music. Hmm. And, it's, and if you kind of take early slave songs and Quranic chanting and blues music, and you kind of, um, I, I've heard it on the radio where they've actually superimposed one over the other, and they're extremely similar. Wow. So, yeah, so, so Islam is an American religion. Yeah, it's part of our DNA too. Yeah. Yeah, I think trying to resist that totalizing impulse is important for us as, as non-Muslim Americans. Um, you know, we have this desire to make everything neat and tidy, but we come from this country that's whole kind of founding principle is that all different kinds of people are like messed up together here, <laughs> um, you know, for good and for bad. Uh, yes. and, and diversity, diversity is messy. Yeah. Right, right. And, and people are messy. People are messy. Mm -hmm. Religion is messy. <laughs> Everything is complex. We need to we need to take the time to unpack all of this. Um, so thank you for for doing that in your in your book. And thank you for your very articulate and clear and and fun and <laughs> funny discussion of this. I, I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Well, you um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, do you want to close us out with a, a short reading from the book? I, I hear there's some Star Trek references and I would love, <laughs> I would love to hear those. <laughs> well, I have to tell you, um, you know, when I was, I, okay, I never went to a Star Trek convention. I just have to make that really clear. <laughs> um, but, but when I was reading my first, sorry, when I was writing my first book, I was really, really surprised to see how many Star Trek examples kept slipping into my brain uh, when I was writing a book on, on Muslims. And in a way it makes sense because Star Trek was about um, aspiring to be better and universal values and shared humanity. And that's what I write about, but in an Islamic context, I write about shared humanity and universal values. So it all makes sense, but it is kind of um, unexpected. <laughs> so. I, I thought um, I thought I would just read from the introduction a little bit. Great. So, <clears throat> so this is the introduction from my from my book, Demystifying Sharia. Upon completing the first draft of this book, which I had provisionally entitled Sharia in America, I realized that almost none of it had to do with Sharia in America. That's because there isn't any, not taking over our country anyway. I laughed envisioning a book called Sharia in America filled with blank pages. Islam is difficult to write about in my country, that's the United States, because we are none of us here, not even Muslim Americans, 
completely unconditioned by the negative stereotypes so normalized in our culture, educational system, news media, and entertainment industry. Any positive discussion of Islam is dismissed as propaganda. I often ruminate on how Muslims are perceived to be aliens from Star Trek's evil parallel universe, the mirror universe, where mass murder, despotism, and conquest are the norm, as opposed to the real non-Muslim universe, which we rosily view as valuing peace and cooperation. Although it's not true that Muslims come from the mirror universe, in case you were wondering, so many loathsome misconceptions adhere to us that I cannot adequately explain Sharia without also unwinding stereotypes, eliminating presumptions, and providing historical background for current events. Human psychology periodically obstructs these explanations because we all prefer comfortable information that bathes us in approbation and absolves us of transgression. I would love to believe that when my husband and I argue, it is always 100% his fault. No one likes acknowledging responsibility but a discussion of Islam in the world today is not possible without explaining the colonialist role of European and American powers in Islamic history. In defending Islam against stereotypes and countering negativity with positive examples, never do I intend to give the erroneous imp impression that I'm declaring my religion to be better than another. Never is proselytizing my purpose. If spiritual and moral perfection God, if you wish, resides at the top of a mountain, then I believe many paths lead there, meandering variously up the sides. As the Quran says, to me my religion, to you yours. Of course, I'm writing as a Muslim American and not, say, a Muslim Indonesian or Jordanian. As such, I'm as much a cultural product of my environment as anyone. A Christian Ugandan might practice a markedly different interpretation of Christianity than a Christian American. My culture and my diverse, wonderfully multicultural American environment in which I am fed and clothed and housed influences the interpretations of Islam I choose, but I am no less authentically Muslim for being American. One of my father's closest friends was Jewish. He read my first book on Islam, The Muslim Next Door, with tremendous interest, delighting particularly in the stories of my father as a new immigrant. When I despairingly felt as though I were chipping away with a teaspoon at a great granite wall of misconceptions about Islam and Muslims, he told me, when I was a kid, they said that Jews drank the blood of Christian babies. You just have to keep fighting, keep fighting those stereotypes. This book is a defense against the stereotypes and I hope a relatable discussion of Sharia. The information herein isn't my personal opinion, it's academically reliable, based on established scholarship and facts. And defending against stereotypes doesn't mean I'm arguing that Muslims are perfect. We're just not the ogres of the modern world. It's always easy to buy into vilification of minority groups. On the Starship Enterprise, after a Starfleet Admiral persecutes an innocent person solely because he is fractionally Romulan, Captain Picard converses with his chastened security officer who has finally realized that his wholehearted embrace of the Admiral's tactics, shown to be bigotry and McCarthyism, was misplaced. At least it's over, says Worf, shamefaced. She, or someone like her, will always be with us, responds the captain grimly, waiting for the right climate in which to flourish, 
spreading fear in the name of righteousness. Vigilance, Mr. Worf. That is the price we have to continually pay. Let us be vigilant, learning about Islam as Muslims understand it, not as the anti-Muslim propagandists deform and twist it, will deflate the sails of those spreading fear and open new avenues for intercultural and interreligious understanding. That's what Captain Picard was fighting for, the evaluation of everyone for their integrity, not their religion or ethnicity or cultural background. Thank you for being on board. Thank you so much for that reading. Um, and I love just getting to spend a, a brief moment pretending that we're all aboard <laughs> the Stars of Enterprise. It, it was wonderful to talk to you. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Sambal. All right. So uh, that is it for us today. Um, thank you all for listening. We so appreciate your ears, your attention, uh, your concentration. So thank you. And um, we hope to catch you in the next Skylit episode coming soon. I'm Maddie Gobo signing off. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. <laughs>